Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello and welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host and joining me, Emily, my co-host. Emily, how you doing? I am so good today. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. good. It's really good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I always. feel like I'm refreshed. Yeah? Coming back from vacation. Mm, vacation. Man, we spent um, t- about two weeks on vacation. Okay. We're kind of piecemealing two weeks together. Right. Sometimes when you're a pastor and you preach on Sundays, you kind of have to piecemeal vacation You like dabble together. a little bit. You dabble a little, little bit. little vacation here. Come back. Little vacation Do a little there. preach. <laughs> go back out. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But... Um, we spent, uh, you know, the front end of the vacation, went and visited my brother in Birmingham, Alabama. Nice. They were having their first baby. Yeah. Unfortunately, the baby didn't come while we were there. So it was like, mm. oh, just kind of waiting around, but that was fun. Took yeah, the kids, good. created a lot of memories. But then we went to, ready for this? Drum roll. Bah! I don't know what that bah <laughs> sound was. <laughs> it's like a cannon popping. It was like a cannon, or... I, don't, I don't know. But <laughs> we went to California, sunny California. Nice. For like 10 days kidless. That's awesome. It was incredible. What were like some of your favorite parts of vacation? Um, kidless. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on that, right? <laughs> Emphasis on kidless. That yes. was my favorite part. No, no, no. I, well, um, I'm actually writing and releasing a blog post about this, just about how important it was for us to get that 10 days together, especially yeah. as we have been married for eight months now, blending a family, mm-hmm. five-year-old, four-year-old, just kind of crazy season of that but it was just really special we the first day we were like really missing the kids the second day we were like this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) you can sleep in you can eat your own food exactly (laughs) it was really really great i think every married couple especially when they have kids should do somewhere like a seven to ten day by themselves every year you know seems like a long time it's hard to leave your kids for that long but it really is worth it. Um, it's a good co- reconnecting time for right. reconnecting. Something like, I feel like we're kind of like connecting for the first time yeah. in a lot of ways, Christy and I do. But um, it's like, what's, what, what's your favorite color? You yeah. know, like, but it was, uh, it was really cool to do that. And so we went and uh, just did the gamut of California. Like awesome. flew out to L.A., stayed in Huntington Beach area, uh, Newport Beach area mm-hmm. for like three, ni- three nights. Just got to relax there. Uh, we have some friends in South Pasadena, so okay. we stayed there for a night and uh, hung out in the craziness of L.A. for right. <laughs> for a couple of days. That was fun. Did a lot of hiking and a lot of just exploring and sightseeing. And then we went to San Diego mm. for a couple of days, Yep, and that was a blast. Uh, probably my favorite part of the trip because while we were in San Diego, we learned how to surf. Awesome. Have you ever Are, been surfing? Um, I can barely swim, so <laughs> no. <laughs> Have you ever been boogie boarding or like? Mm-mm-mm. No, I can get my toes in the in the water. That's about as good as it gets. Toes in the water. <laughs> toes in the water. All right, Zach Brown, Ben. <laughs> yeah, we won't. We won't continue it. that. It's but fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really really fun thing, and I'm I'm sure there's lots of listeners who have surfed before, but. It was our first time ever doing it, mm. and um, it was so it was so funny. You know, my my cute wife, she looked like Blue Crush out there. It was really <laughs> great, just trying to catch these waves. But we went to Law Street Beach, which is which is really cool because the beach is divided in half, okay. and like half of it is there's like a buoy there that says surfers on this side and swimmers on this side. That's cool, and um, it's really cool. <laughs> what was really funny is there was like these two, probably 
nine, ten year old girls that were like swimming in the surfer side. And I overheard one of them being like, What's all these surfers doing right here? <laughs> like, I'll read the sign, you know? <laughs> but um, it was really fun because it was like a perfect beginner level thing. And I honestly thought, Emily, that they would instruct us for mm -hmm. 30 or 40 minutes like we've yeah. never been don't know anything about surfing right and it was like a five minute rundown Ooh. of instruction from a super california gal who'd been surfing for 14 years and you couldn't understand a word she was saying because <laughs> she was mumbling she was like like if you just want to catch one of those like really <laughs> sick waves and you just make sure you just pop up at the right time and oh. it'll just be like really rad and you're like Okay. You're like gnarly. How about some like actual instruction? But it was fun. And we probably didn't need to spend the money for surf instructions. Probably could have YouTubed <laughs> it. But we both got up and it was a lot of fun. It was That's a blast. really awesome. So we did that. And then we went to San Francisco, um, flew out there, stayed with a friend of mine who's, who's planting a church in San Ramon okay. on the Oakland side of the bay and just got to catch up with them. They were like our, our uh, like, like personal Yelp. That's so good. We need those people just, in our yeah, lives. They know everything <laughs> to do, and they were like, do this, don't do this, do this. You know, it was able to maximize our time there. But one day while we are in the city, we rented bikes and rode bikes from Little Italy all the way down to Fisherman's Wharf and all the oh. way across the Golden Gate Bridge. That's awesome. And it was awesome, except who knew this? Who knew? I had no idea that San Francisco in the summertime, when all the rest of the world is like 80 degrees and beautiful, San Francisco is like 55 and foggy. I and did not know that. Didn't know it either. So we show up with shorts and flip-flops <laughs> and did not have a plan. Whatsoever. So we're riding around on bikes and shorts freezing. and flip-flops, freezing cold. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was memorable. It was memorable. That's good. I'm glad you guys had the opportunity to get away and reconnect and recharge. It was really good. Yeah. It was really good. Um, have you ever seen Full House? Do you remember the show Full House? I do remember it. I think I have seen a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about Full House 2. Right, no. Fuller that, House, that, no. The Fuller House. No, that, was, that one's done. That one flopped, I think. I can't believe you've never seen Full House. I mean, I've seen it just a couple uh, episodes. <laughs> Whatever happened to Baby D? <laughs> the Milkman, the Paperboy, Emil Yeah, I haven't TV. seen it that much. <laughs> I, I just kind of yeah. Well. I don't really know the words, up. but I made we, ha we I made Christy while we were because it takes place in San Francisco. Oh, okay. This is how like weird I am sometimes. I made her watch the YouTube intro of that. Okay. While we were riding bikes around, like to create the moment, it was like before it was we do like this, an immersive experience. It was an immersive right. experience. <laughs> All I had throughout the entire ride was the Full House theme song and. If you'll remember this one, the Rice Aroni theme song. Can you sing that one for us too? Rice Aroni, the San Francisco treat. Right? That's good. I don't know. Oh, well. I feel like all of this is a little over my head, but I'm really supportive of you <laughs> and your singing today. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I feel like there's a massive like generational gap. Yeah, there between might us be right an age now. gap here, which is weird because we're not that. Different in age, but oh, it's just enough, I if guess. You, man, you missed out if you did not grow up on Full House. Yeah, my life is lacking for sure. Anyways. <laughs> so, yeah, well, we're going to, I'm going to like post some pictures of what all yeah, we did. So people I can't can wait see to it. see them. And where we went, if people are going to California, they, they need to go to these places. It's like the Davy Blackburn travel blog right. for California. There it is. Yeah. Hit it up. There it is. Hit it up. <laughs> hit it up. You're going on vacation soon, right? Yes. We are excited. We are uh, going to Boston. What? We leave next week. 
I've never been to Boston in the fall. <laughs> Me neither. And I've never been to Boston in the See, fall. See, that's not a generational guy. I, I got that one. Yeah, Let's go. Veggie Tales. I watched that as a kid. <laughs> Were you a teenager when that? I'm pretty sure I watched that with the kids I babysat right, while right. I was like in college or something. Yeah. You know? Okay. My kids watch it now. Yeah, it's good. They That's a good VeggieTales song. We are the pirates who don't do anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, I probably can't sing that song anymore mm -mm. after next week. Because so. th that's true. I will, be have been, you will be I will have been to Boston in the there fall. There you go. Yeah. That's I'll good. just change the words a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're going to Boston for, uh, I think it's six nights. Um, so we're trying to finalize, like, what are the things we want to do? Um, but yeah, it'll well, listen, be good. We're really we excited. If we have any Boston listeners... Or mm, yeah. in New England area, yes. please send us suggestions on what Kent and Emily should do on their vacation. Yes. That would be amazing. We would love Hello it. at ResonateIndy.com. Yes. That'd be amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's going to be so fun. I'm really jealous, honestly. I'm really jealous. Yeah. That'll be a lot of fun for you guys. And a, and a good season, a good mm -hmm. recharge season. You've been stepping in and doing a lot of stuff yes. for us. Because right now, we are um, actually in the process of, speaking of singing, in the process of hiring a worship and production pastor. Yeah, we are. So you've stepped in and led worship quite a bit in mm -hmm. the midst of that, even though you're leading a team on Sundays. And, yeah. And just done a fantastic job with it. Thank you. But we would like to put somebody on staff to do this. Yes. So here's, listen, public service announcement. If there is anybody who is listening and you are a worship, you know, you have experience in worship pastoring and you're kind of looking around to see if there's an opportunity for you mm -hmm. or if you know somebody, yeah. um, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can actually go to resonateindy.com slash jobs. Yes. And uh, we're looking for somebody who's passionate about not just leading worship, but building uh, a worship culture, yeah. um, really leading musicians, discipling, uh, people. discipling musicians, um, building teams, and someone who's passionate about the three fronts of ministry that we do, mm -hmm. you know, building the local church, serving the, um, the, the at-risk community that we serve in Riverside, right. um, our inner city ministry, and our Nothing is Wasted ministry, someone who's really passionate about all three of those fronts because it's something we do um, and our whole staff is passionate about. So, yeah, it's true. It's yeah, unique. It's very unique. But, hey, if that's you, we'd love, we'd love to hear more about you and meet you and all those yeah. things. So, resonateindy.com slash jobs. Slash jobs. We'd love to hear from you. Also, we'd also love to hear from you to rate and review the podcast. This yes. really helps. Um, it just helps to uh, get the word out there more about this podcast. I'm telling you, this thing is really blowing my mind how much it is climbing in listenership, um, and we're excited about that. But um, also know there are a lot of people out there that need hope in yeah. their headphones. And so rate and review this. Help us out with that. We would just ask you that favor. And, and if you feel led, you can also contribute to this podcast by giving. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have people that do that as well. Um, it, it's not... It's not free for us to produce this podcast. Right. And so it really helps with producing this podcast, getting this content out there, as well as um, the ministry that we're doing on this this front in Indianapolis. It helps right. us with that. And so we really appreciate everybody who has given. You can go to resonateindy.com slash give. Actually, you can go to either one of them, davyblackburn.com slash give, resonateindy.com slash give. It right. all goes to the same place. It does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just reroute you. But uh, whichever one's most convenient for you, we'd love for you to to um to help us out in that way yeah for sure um, so today episode 33 ooh. i can't believe we're here i feel like every episode is like wow we have another one and it's just really cool to see um the people that jesus is like literally stewarding us to interview mm -hmm. to give hope through your headphones um so this today, is gonna be a good one yeah we have miles mcpherson miles mcpherson who 
is a California native. All right. He played football, NFL football. Wow. Yeah, you didn't know this, huh? I, don't, I did not know yeah, that. He's a former NFL football player for the San Diego Chargers. Okay. Now pastors the Rock Church in San Diego and is releasing a book. Um, actually, at the time of this podcast released, he'll be mm-hmm. releasing it the following Tuesday. So September 11th is releasing, I believe, his third book, and it's called The Third Option. Okay. And it's on racial reconciliation. Wow. So we have a conversation, just a beautiful conversation, about the racial divide in our country and um, what it looks like for us as the church to bridge those racial tensions. Racial divide has caused a lot of pain over the past decades in our country. Definitely. Lots of pain. There are a lot of people on both sides of the the tension that have have been harmed and hurt by it. And so... We just have a really good conversation with him um, all the way out in San Diego. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm excited for each of our listeners to listen to this podcast. Um, So why don't we hop into your interview with Miles McPherson? Pastor Miles, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you? It is my pleasure, man. It's good to hear your voice again, as we talked about a year and a half ago. So yeah. good to be here. Well, yeah, we got connected uh, when you were doing some research for a project that you now have, uh, you're birthing this project, which is just a, a cool thing to see, releasing this book, The Third Option, uh, this coming Tuesday, as the listener is going to be hearing this on a Thursday. They're, you're releasing it September 11th, and that, that's just exciting. I'm so excited about it. It's been almost about a year and three quarters waiting, working, worrying, stressing, yeah. and it's finally here. Well, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of context? So where are you? Tell me a little bit about your family. What do you do? Just a little bit of, of the background of Miles McPherson. Yeah, I'm a pastor, a husband, father, grandfather. I grew up in New York, played four years uh, in the NFL with the San Diego Chargers. I was originally drafted by the Los Angeles Rams and got cut, which means I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to play for the Chargers four years. I have a brother who played NFL. He was a Heisman runner-up in 1987. I have another brother who was an eighth-ranked boxer. Um, and then two sisters, they weren't athletic. Um, and then I got drafted by the Rams, got cut, went and played for the Chargers four years. Um, first two years, I was doing cocaine and smoking marijuana and chasing women. And then um, I got saved. I was five o'clock in the morning. One day I was laying on my couch at five o'clock in the morning. I had been doing cocaine all night and I had even brought cocaine on the team plane. Wow. Um, my teammate was doing crack. I went to a crack house and watched him do crack. And so I was a mess. And five o'clock in the morning, April 12th, 1984, I just said, Lord, I can't do this anymore. And, and stop that day. Wow. I never did cocaine again, never smoked marijuana. And my girlfriend and I got back together that, and we got married uh, that September. Wow. September 11th. Matter of fact, our anniversary is September 11th. Get same day as book release. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So so then you, you uh, at some point, felt called to, to ministry. I mean, talk to me about what that journey looked like coming from this, you know, ath- athletic drug background, and then you're moving into a place where you feel like God's calling you to pastor a church. What, what happened there? 
Yeah, and I'll tell you, as I tell this part of the story, a lot of your listeners, um, God has a call on your life and gifting that you may not know. And I had no idea that I was supposed to speak to people Hmm. in in front of people. And when the charges would ask me to go speak at like a junior high or something, I said, look, I'm not a speaker. You know, I'll go take sign autograph, take pictures, but I don't speak in front of crowds. And then God showed me that that's what he designed me for. And I started sharing my testimony at prisons and schools and churches and and realized um, I loved it. And mm. so I started a Bible study in my house with some kids in my neighborhood. And we had nine nationalities in my house. Wow. And then I became the youth pastor and it was diverse as San Diego. And, and then, you know, 16 years later, we started the church and it's been diverse since day one. Wow. Uh, but I just started sharing my story and got discipled by guys on the team. And but one thing led to another. And I started, you know, lear- realizing that God gave me the gift of gab for his <laughs> glory, <laughs> you know, for his glory. So and that's how I got into ministry, just sharing the gospel. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you, you just brought up this topic of diversity and, you know, the idea of of uh, mixing of races in the midst of all of this ministry that you're doing. And this is what you wrote this book on, The Third Option, right? Uh, it's a, a conversation about racial reconciliation. What, what was the impetus behind this? I'm sure as you're doing ministry like this, you're seeing all kinds of um, circumstances and, and things happening. What was the impetus behind writing this book? Yeah, you know, if I go back to when I was a child, I grew up, I have a, uh, all my grandparents are from Jamaica, and my two grandfathers are black, and my one grandmother's white, and one grandmother's half Chinese. So I got called names by the white kids because I wasn't white enough. Mm. Got called names by the black kids because I wasn't black enough. And uh, wow. playing, fo- playing football, you're around all kind of kids, and that's where you have family yeah. uh, on, in the locker room. And so my whole my family was diverse. We, you know, we had all these different shades of brown, and my white grandmother, who was ostracized by her family when she married my grandfather, so we never knew her family, even though they lived 15 minutes away. And so that was my upbringing. When I started the church, I was so used to being around a lot of different kind of people, and our church was diverse. Uh, I saw every day, and still do see every day you know, dozens and dozens of different ethnicities get along, yet the country's divided. Yeah. And it would break my heart, especially having played football. And, you, you know, your, your brothers are white and black, Hispanic, or whoever's on the team. Those are your brothers. And yet you see the country being torn apart. And it was mm-hmm. just breaking my heart. So when I got the opportunity to write a book, um, uh, I actually, the, the book I originally intended to write only had one chapter on racism. And that was a chapter I wrote as the proposal. Hmm. And I, as I was writing it, I was like, man, I wish I could write a whole book on this. And, and the publisher said, can you write a whole book on it? So I said, <laughs> yes. And that's how it started. And the reason, you know, the reason is I wanted to give people tools to get along. The book is about honor, hmm. how we can honor each other. And I wanted to equip people on how to express honor one to another. Mm, that's amazing. You, you know, you've got this, your family that is seemingly, you know, very, very diverse. And um, it's not making sense to you as you're looking at the world uh, that's, that seems to, especially not even just the world, but like the church sometimes is the most racially divided you know, um, organization 
in the in the world oftentimes you know and we we hear this this phrase often that sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week in the church but it sounds like you grew up in a church that was very racially diverse was having that conversation already is that is that true does that kind of inform some of your background your your thought process behind a lot of this as well well the church i went to from first to eighth grade was a Catholic school and it was not diverse. Okay. Um, uh, it was predominantly white. It was in a white neighborhood where blacks could not live. Mm. Um, it just happened to be two minutes from my house. And when I came back over a certain street, uh, I was in my neighborhood, which was all black. However, the, the church that I pastor has always been diverse. Um, so my family was diverse, my football teams were diverse, and then my church and Bible study, even before the church, the Bible study I had in my house with teenagers was diverse. Hmm. And so everything that was coming out of my life was diverse, yet I was seeing a divided country. Hmm. And um, it, it was just, it, it was breaking my heart, you know, when I was a kid because I lived in two worlds. Right. And so it's it's been um, a burden my whole life and to see my grandparents and my parents deal with all the stuff they dealt with. Um, and you know, you're watching television and, uh, when I was younger, it was black and white TV, but it was really never, there was no black on it. It was yeah. just white. Yeah. So, you know, my upbringing was so different than today. Uh, so, you know, you live with that all your life, but by the time I started the church here in San Diego in 2000, we had a diverse and still do have a very diverse, uh, congregation mm. leadership is diverse, and so I know and knew it can it could work. It, and it was how can we get a message, and how can I write a message that can speak to the general public uh, throughout the nation? So, so if you had to be, I mean, there's a certain level of intentionality that goes into that. Then, if you're, you know, as a pastor, we think about this a lot. Like, what does it look like for us, our church, to reflect the kingdom of God? Right, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so many people want that, but uh, it sounds like there needs to be a certain level of intentionality behind that. Why Why is that? Why do we have to be, you know, I would think it would just be like, hey, if we're just sharing the gospel and we're just, you know, talking about um, the message of the gospel, then then it's going to draw everybody. But w- what is it that, what are the barriers? What are the walls that are keeping our churches um you know, unilateral, <laughs> unidimensional. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I would, I would, uh, anybody listening who goes to church, um, they would have to ask why they go to the church they go to. You know, in my book, The Third Option, one of the things that I write about is um, the fact that we group ourselves with people like us. Mm. And like us could be profession, it could be age, it could be music style, or it could be what we look like. And, you know, people like to go to a place where they're around people who look like them or have something in common. It just so happens at our church, the what's most common is, you know, I guess the, the, the worship, the, the presence of God and the ministry, what the Lord's mm-hmm. doing, I, I assume. But, um, uh, but yeah, nine, eight, 97% of churches are monolithic. They look the, there's one major 80 percent, 80 plus percent of the same ethnicity. Um, and, and that should change because, you know, the world's looking at the church to lead on loving and forgiving people and uh, loving your, your enemies and your, and everyone being your neighbor. Yet it, we segregate on Sunday morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, do you think as a reflection of like, you know, obviously not the 
church collective, but like us as Christians individually, maybe we um, don't have the prejudice or overt prejudice nature in our, in our hearts. And yet at the same time, we still find ourselves grouping with like-minded people because it's just default, you know? Yeah, exactly. I I think the biggest aha I've learned writing this book in is that you can be racially offensive and not be a racist. And I, and Mm. whenever I, whenever you come, whenever you talk about racism, people get so, you know, tense because they don't want to be called a racist, but you can be racially offensive. And that includes a hundred percent of people because we're all flawed. We're not perfect Mm. because the, the, you know, the third option is, there's many third options, but one of them is that you're either a racist or you're not. But really the third option is that you're biased. You're not necessarily a racist, but you're still biased. And there's things about mm. people you don't understand. And there are offensive things that you do say, think that uh, you wouldn't do say or think if you learned a few things about yourself or other people. And so this book is about equipping people with tools on how to be honoring. It's not about not being a racist. It's about being honoring because you mm. can avoid, avoid something and then make another mistake. And, and, but how can I be honoring to people, uh, e- even the whole language of tolerance? I don't want you to tolerate me. I want you to love me. Hmm. And so, you know, it's like saying to your wife, I'm going to tolerate you. No, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that just doesn't work. You you don't want to marry someone you tolerate. You want to marry someone that you want to be with and that you honor and respect and love. Hmm. And so this book is about how can I come to honor and um, love people that are different, have nothing to do with me. Maybe I'm today I'm scared of or I'm ignorant of. Or people that I that I've labeled those people, mm. um, you know, we need to learn to honor and love them, and and so this book is to give people tools on how to do that. And the first tool is to accept that you can be offensive, and offensive means that you say something very innocently, and even thinking you're making a compliment, mm. but it it rubs somebody wrong because you don't know. Well, you need to know, and mm. you need to not say it. And, and, and so this book is about helping people learn what those tools are, but they first have to accept that they can't potentially be offensive. You know, if you deny the possibility of being offensive, you will deny the opportunity to learn how to be honoring. Mm. And so that's the first major step of the book. That's great. I love it because, you know, Romans 12 talks about outdoing one another with honor. And, and what if that was the case for, um, for all of us as followers of Jesus, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter the race, but that we're outdoing one another with honor. When I think about that, like, I love the parallel you just made it with your wife. It's kind of easy to think about the idea of relationship with someone that you love, like your spouse, that honor to me with my spouse means I'm doing whatever I can to step over that gap, to step over the bridge of misunderstanding and try to understand the other side. Is, is that what you're seeing is probably a, a remedy in this conversation? Is this, is this how we, how do we get to this place where we are honoring of each other? Exactly. I think the first step of honoring other people is first to honor yourself. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that, there's a story in Joshua uh, 5 where Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. And he's going to fight the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Uptites, and Adesites. And, (laughs) 
and he's confronted by the command of the Lord's army. And he says to the command of the Lord's army, are you for us or our adversaries? Mm. You, is one or the other. You have to pick, there's only two options and culture gives us two options. It's either us or them. So it pits you, it pits us against somebody. Yeah. And the command of the Lord's army says, no, I'm not for either one of you. I am the side. I'm the third option. And mm. the third option is that we honor what we have in common, which is the image of God. Well, I have the same image of God that you have. I've been made in the same image. Mm. It's not inferior or superior. And so the first thing I have to do is acknowledge that I was me. I have a responsibility to live up to the potential God has given me to love you, to honor you, to respect you, to forgive you, to speak life to you, to live in harmony with you. That's my responsibility. So the first thing I need to do is figure out what ways I'm not doing that. Yeah. And you know, if, if I'm scared of you, or if I have negative assumptions about you, or I believe I believe stereotypes about you, I can no longer honor you. So I have to deal with myself. Mm. And so the book, the first eleven chapters of eighteen are all about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the, it's, it's broken up to three parts: me, you, we. And the first eleven is all about me. Wow. And. And so the first thing I have to do is I got to I got to check my heart and I have to place a priceless value, which is to honor something, place a priceless value on my ability to reflect God's heart towards you. And I got to figure that out uh, first. And then I can start then I could start doing things that uh, I've written about toward you to be honoring towards you. Mm. Gotcha. So you've got 11 chapters on this me part. It's interesting. (laughs) Take the, take the, you know, plank out of your own eye before you point out the speck on somebody else's eye. Um, what, what are, what else is there in that honoring side of things? If we camp there for a little bit, when it comes to me, what do I need to look at? What what do I need to be introspective and self-reflective about when it comes to how I view other people? What else do you write about in that? Good. Um, that I love people correctly. The Bible says that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And when we re, when we label people something less than neighbor, we give ourselves um, permission, biblical permission, to not love them because they're not a neighbor. Mm. And for example, you know, we have all the names we call black people, white people, Hispanic people, uh, Middle Eastern people. We got all our little our little slurs that we call them, and and that the media calls them, and that we adopt. Once you label someone something less than your neighbor, your brother, your sister, you attribute to them all the characteristics of that negative label. Therefore, they are no longer your equal. They're somewhat subhuman. And you you now know it's so much easier now for you to accept them to be treated unfairly because they're not at your level. Uh, you have given yourself um, subconscious permission to not have to be nice to them because they're not they're not at your level that they're, they're not your brother your neighbor your sister and and then you go to your friends those people who you consider your neighbor and you love them and you feel like I'm good because I'm mm-hmm. loving somebody but really you just you just giving yourself permission to violate the number 2 commandment and so the first thing we have to do is get rid of the title those people never say that mm-hmm. and see everybody as your neighbor your brother your sister and then treat them accordingly uh, the other thing is get rid of fear. I mean, we fear people uh, based on stuff we heard. Mm. Um, there was a lady who told me as I was writing this book, she told me, why can't I get over it? So I said, you know what? You need to go someplace where you're the only, she was a white lady. You need to go someplace where you're the only white person. Mm. 
So I wrote a form, a, a little, it's in the book. Uh, it's called Walk in My Shoes Field Trip. And it's a, it's a like eight questions. What did you, I, 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 for a person who does this, so I said, what, is it, what does it feel like when I ask you to go someplace where you would be the only white person? What, what did you feel like when you were going? What, what happened when you were there? How did the people treat you? Mm-hmm. Uh, did what you fear would happen? Did it ever happen? Had it ever happened before? And four of the six people did it. Two of the people who didn't do it, grown men, they just said they wouldn't do it. And he said, even if I went to a black church, I'd feel like I want to leave right away. Mm-hmm. Well, well, if that's how you feel about people, how can you honor them? Yeah. And, and what is it based on? Is it based on something that happened to you? Is it based on something that happens to you every time you met somebody who looked like that? I mean, where did you get that from? Mm. And often we get our information from the media and from anecdotes and we and it's very uh, flawed information and it's very limited information um, and, and it's very condescending. And so when you uh, uh, place those kind of assumptions on uh, groups of people, you are cutting yourself off from them and there's no way you can honor or love them. Hey, I just wanted to take a second and interrupt this interview to tell you about Thriving in Trial, a nothing is wasted handbook that I've just released in ebook format. Over the last year of interviewing people on this podcast who have walked through hardship and adversity, I've noticed 10 consistent themes, 10 common denominators, if you will, that have helped people find healing in their pain. I wrote my book, Nothing is Wasted, as a memoir narrating the journey of healing God took me on after my wife, Amanda, was killed in November of 2015. While we're waiting for that book to be released, I wanted to distribute some practical content that could act as a companion to Nothing is Wasted, the book. That's why I wrote Thriving in Trial, to give you practical tools to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. Jump over to DaveyBlackburn.com to download your copy of Thriving in Trial, a Nothing is Wasted handbook. That's really good. That idea, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, I've, it's interesting. It, it's, um, I feel like there is the ability for us to love our neighbors comes from an ability to accept um, in wholeness who God has made us to be as well. Because love your neighbor as you love yourself, as yourself. It's not that you're loving yourself in the sense, you know, you're, you're self-absorbed, self. No, no, no. It's that you are whole as a person that there's not a brokenness inside of you that's causing a skewed perspective of other people who are different than you, but you realize I'm a child of God. Everybody else is around me also a child of God. And so it allows me to honor other people. Miles, I, I, um, my wife is half Asian and, um, she had a similar experience growing up. She went to a very, like pretty much all white school on the South side of Indianapolis in high school. And she was constantly, uh, derided because of her race. And she was, you know, only half Asian. And yet then she also spent some time over in Cambodia and she stuck out like a sore thumb as she was doing missions work in Cambodia. And I, she's, she's talked about before that she's always felt like she's never fit in. She's never mm. belonged anywhere because she's not like what you said earlier. You're, you're too white for the black people, too black for the white people. And I think there's this sense of that every single one of us want to belong to each other. And sometimes out of that, we can tend to group ourselves with other people and then 
pit ourselves against other people as, you know, as well. But this sense of belonging comes only from Christ, only from God and the wholeness that he can create inside of our own heart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then out of that, we're able to love our neighbor and forgive and be reconciled to each other. And um, I just think, you know, I think that's, that's an important conversation with the church and with people. Yeah, and, and people have to realize that God made those people and loves those people just the same, and he made those people in exactly the same image yeah. that he's made them in. Uh, and when we're in love with God, you know, First John tells us we can't love God who we haven't seen and, and hate our neighbor yeah. who we have seen. And so we have to stop and go, okay, who are the people I have problem with and why? Mm. How, how do I deal with my fear? How do I deal with my ignorance? How do I learn my blind spots? There's things about myself I don't know. And, you know, if, if everybody listened to this one up to somebody who is different than them and said, is, and asked them, is there something I do that's offensive to you? I mean, that's a powerful mm. question and get ready for the answer. But if you really want to learn about your biases, remember, it doesn't make you a racist. It just means that you say things that are offensive. It's, it's almost like if you ask all uh, guys or ask women, do I do anything to offend you as a woman? Mm. You, you might you might realize that there are some things you do and say that that rub women wrong, but they've never said anything to you. It doesn't necessarily make you a chauvinist, but it will make you help you be more loving. And that's what we should do as far as race goes. And um, so we, we have to go back. Just the first step is to deal with me. Deal with me. All right. So after the first 11 chapters, you then <laughs> transition to the you side of things. What does that look like? What does it mean to deal with you then? You know, every time you look at someone and even think about someone, but especially when you look at someone and have a conversation, you are having a race conversation. Mm. It doesn't matter what they look like. They can look exactly like you. But as soon as you see someone and their clothes and the, and if they speak, their voice, the more you interact with them, the more you are having a race conversation because your brain is processing that information without you even knowing it. It's subconscious. Mm. And you are making assumptions about them based on how they look, how they dress, how they walk, um, they're, they're, uh, how they talk. And But the problem is that, that those assumptions are based on limited information. Now, the, when I say limited information, it's information that you've gathered all your life, but what you don't know is that person. Mm. And so you may make assumptions but you need to allow it to be a race consultation. So every race conversation yeah. should be a race consultation. Allow the person to self-disclose what their dreams are, their pain, why they do what they do, why they dress the way they dress, why they talk the way they talk. Let them self-disclose to you who they are before you come to a, a conclusion. Now, you may have assumptions, great, yeah. but hold, hold those assumptions and let them be challenged by the person's self-disclosure. And so if I met your wife, you know, I may, I may think she's Chinese and white. But she may be Vietnamese and white. She may be Korean. <laughs> she may she may she may be Korean and Italian. I don't know, right? Uh, but but and, she gets and, that question I'm, a lot. Where, where are you from? She's like, I'm from exactly. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And but she probably has a fascinating story. Yeah. But if she said she was, is she Chinese and white? No, she's Korean. 
Oh, she's Ukrainian. Why? Yeah. Okay. So, so her mom grew up in an orphan. First ten years of her mom's life was in a Korean orphanage, and then she was adopted oh. by an American family. Oh my God! Brought over the states. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, she has a fascinating story. Yeah. Instead of assuming, oh, you're probably good at math, and you, you know, you probably really, you know, instead of making all these assumptions, which she is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and and sometimes some of the assumptions we make are true. Yeah. However, we, you know, as you know, you can use those. Those assumptions can lead to offensive comments, yeah, but right. you let people self-disclose mm -hmm. uh, and and learn about people. You know. Um, so I, I think a lot of us are looking at people do things on television and looking at people do things in the media or and, and we assume things about them when we don't even know them and we yeah. don't even know anyone like them. Mm -hmm. and, and so we make all these assumptions. Yeah. Wow. Isn't this just like almost, you know, interpersonal relationships 101, though, you know, it's, it's amazing how this is kind of stuff that, you know, we look, we talk about when it comes to just. How to how to deal with your friends and your coworkers and anybody that you maybe have a um, uh, you have tension between it's it's coming to the table um, allowing someone to disclose rather than bringing assumptions or presumptions to the table it's allowing them to really disclose themselves and not filling in these gaps with your own story but really allowing them to to you know um, like what you just said disclose of themselves. Why is it that it that the race almost adds the race factor in this adds like fuel to the fire? What is it about this race conversation that maybe since the beginning of time this has just been a hotbed of a of a topic for us? Yeah, I think in America again racism is everywhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. It is it is about one group wanting to feel superior over another group. And then the the oppressed group fighting back, and then you have tension. So uh, it's everywhere in the world. So let me first say that, and and it, it applies to every single person in some form or fashion. Um, in America, you know, it, it's, the history goes back really to the beginning, um, uh, but. It's so easy for me to want to be on the in the group that's in power, and then mm -hmm. if I'm oppressed, I'm of course fighting for freedom. And now right. you have, you know, you're pitted one against another. That's why the book's the third option because mm -hmm. the the culture says you have to be on one side or the other. The third option says why can't we be together? Why can't we honor mm -hmm. one another? And but it's so easy and convenient to stay with my group. Um, and have good reasons slash assumptions why I don't need to deal with it. I don't want to go over that side because they don't like me anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it's so much easier to be around your own and around people who believe what you believe and, and reinforce what you've been told. And, and it's easy not to have your beliefs challenged by other people. Mm. What would you say, like, if, you know, I'm, I'm white and, and I want to try to bridge those, um, that gap with relationships that I have. Uh, I want to deconstruct the biases that I have, but I am intimidated. What would you say are some practical things that I can do in regards to this you side of things? Like what do I, what do I do practically to really try to, if I have a friend who is black and I'm trying to understand, you know, their, their perspective or their side of things, their viewpoint, their, 
um, their vantage point of the world. How do I do that? Yeah, especially if I'm intimidated. Very good question. Especially if like there's because this is such a hot conversation, it can cause some intimidation around that. Yeah, in in my book, the third option, a chapter on um, uh, color coded conversations. Right, that um, if if you have a friend that you have a very open, honest conversation, and say, I want to learn. And I, I need permission from you to learn and, and make mistakes in our conversations as I learn. Mm. And and I would love to talk to you about things I don't understand. I would love to talk to you about questions I have because I want to be more honoring and loving of you. Now, internally, privately, I would ask and challenge people to think about what are the biases they have? What are the things that they believe about other people that are different? And if they can identify those things, some of those biases they have can lead to questions they could ask Mm. or things they never want to tell anybody. (laughs) But, you know, at least they can know, man, I'm scared of these kind of people. I wonder, uh, you know, do these people hate me? And and, but those are really just having an honest conversation slash relationship with someone because everything's going to be done in the context of relationship. We were made for a relationship. Mm. And when you, when you walk with somebody, I have, I have two chapters on blind spots and one of the blind spots, I think I, I, um, list nine of them, but one of the blind spots, and by the way, a blind spot is where you have a difference between what you intend to do or be mm. and what you actually do. For mm. example, you may say, I love all people, and I don't see color, and I treat everybody the same. And then you go up to someone and say, I don't see color. Well, your intent is to love everybody the same, but when you say you don't see color, you just offended that person. Right, right. And so the impact of what you did was offensive, even though your intent was to develop a relationship. Mm. And the reason it's offensive is because you do see color. That's the only reason you said you don't. Uh, because wow. <laughs> you, you don't say you don't see color when you're with people that are like you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's offensive because God made the color uh, and he made it to be to as something beautiful. So who are we to say we're going to ignore it? Mm. Uh, and, and think about it this way. When people go to Hawaii, they get a tan. They want everybody to see it. But when yeah. someone gets, so, and they want the, the tan that people get in Hawaii is celebrated. The tan that people get in the womb is invalidated. Mm. And so it's so convenient to say, I don't see your tan because you were born with it. But when I go to Hawaii, I want you to see it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so so I think people, if people could have honest relationships and conversations with people who are different and and be very upfront. Listen, I want to learn. I need to be more honoring. Tell me how I'm not honoring. Uh, take your time. And if you know two or three people who are Mexican or black or Asian, don't think now you know all people who are black, Mexican, yeah. Asian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you yeah. meet people and say, oh, I have a black friend. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> and, 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 and it's kind of like saying, now I know all black people, right? Right, right. Uh, but, you know, just t- um, be honest about what you don't know, mm. at least to yourself and walk in humility as a learner of other people. Mm. What would you say to somebody, you know, let's say they're coming to you as their pastor, or let's say, for instance, me. I'm coming to you seeking your pastoring and your counsel in this. Someone who has been offended by 
um, somebody else, and it begins to translate into assuming that all people like that person are going to hurt me. So I'll give you a case in point. I don't feel like personally, Pastor Miles, I struggled with any kind of racism, racial prejudice. I'm sure I had some biases before my wife, my late wife Amanda was killed. But when three black men were arrested, um, all of a sudden I had to start dealing with some of the racism that began to erupt in my heart because then every time I saw um, a, a black teenager that fit, quote unquote, the construct or profile that one of these three men fit, there was this like rage that, I, that came up inside of my heart because of what had been done to me and to my wife. And that person that I saw, just random person walking down the street, may have nothing to do with any of that. But because of that, I've had to rest. I had to wrestle through some feelings of racial prejudice. And and how how would you? I don't think this is just a race conversation. You know, some women they've been mistreated by men, and so then it they they put the presumption or assumption onto all men. Well, all men are like this because of that. You know, it becomes this blanket thing. How would you pastor me in this moment if I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey, I'm struggling, Pastor Miles. Like, I, I don't want to see everyone like this, but this has been done to me and my heart is hurt now. I've been a victim of this. How do I see past this, you know? That's a great question. Number one, I can't imagine that pain. Um, so I'll speak, I'll give you examples, but first let me acknowledge that none of it is to the degree you have suffered and I, and I, I mean, what you went through is a, is a person's worst nightmare. Mm. Um, number one, number, and, and I feel for you. I've been praying for you, man. Mm. <laughs> my, my wife and I were praying for you the other day. I was telling her about this podcast, and I was showing her pictures of you and your family, and mm. she was just brokenhearted. Um, and when something like that happens, it's it's traumatic. Yeah. And you've been you've been emotionally scarred. You've been mentally scarred, and so it's natural for you to have that pain. And those memories pop up. Um, so the examples I'm going to give you are no way to minimize what right, you went right. through. Okay. Um, uh, so number one, I would say, yes, I understand that you have to continue to pray and think logically that the, the three people that did it are, are what those three people did. Right. You also have, I would assume, relationships with a lot of, a way more than three people who right. are black that aren't that. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And and also, you know, if you take all the, I mean, my in my life, again, not to compare, but in my life, I've dealt with garbage from by thousands of white people, mm. right? <laughs> and nothing like what you went through, but just all kind of devious stuff. Yeah. But I also know that that was those individuals and you have to fight with assuming here comes another one, mm -hmm. you know, and, and here comes another comment and another this and another that. And that's what everybody to some degree deal with all the time when it's something like yours that's so traumatic. Um, it's going to take longer to get over that. But I think logically knowing, listen, I know. I, if there's three guys who did that, I know 3,000 that right. are, are the opposite and exactly. focus on those people who are loving and encouraging and forgiving. And, you know what I'm saying? Yep, absolutely. That's good. That's really good. So um, we've talked about the you aspect of things. 
Take me now to the conversation of we. What does that look like? Well, in a bigger, the bigger narrative is relationships that we have to walk together. Um, I have a a chapter on the police and the police and people in the community Mm. uh, working together. Uh, The the last chapter, I think it's the last chapter is on, the second to last chapter, My Brother's Keeper. This chapter is about black people challenging black people to honor, white people Mm. challenging white people to honor. The people I have influence over, the people that are close to me, that I now, we all need to hold each other accountable. Um, There's there's an African-American friend of mine and, and he has issue with white people because he's had stuff happen to him all his life. Yeah. Like all, like all right, of us have, of course, right? yeah. And he's bitter. And I said, brother, I get it. I get it. However, that doesn't give you license to violate the greatest commandment. Mm. And so, so let's talk. And so now I'm holding him accountable and challenging him. Uh, there was a story in the book about uh, raising your kids. If you, if you model to your kids that you're only around people like you, and you, and you model to them that everyone else is not important, mm. that you can actually be fine without having any interracial relationships. Um, and th- uh, let me see, let me say it this way, that your life will not be enriched by people who are different. Mm. Wow. You are, you are sending a message to the kids that, or the people in the younger people in your life who you influence, uh, a, a very negative message. And so how can I influence positively the people in my life to be more honoring mm. and hold them accountable? Yeah, that's so good. It's almost like on some level, you you know, as someone who is white, you can't, uh, it's more effective. It sounds like what you're saying. It's more effective for me to really um, have the conversation of influence with someone who is, like me, who is white, to to really instruct and um, mentor them not to see the other side the way they've been, you know, the way they've been skewed to see it. And likewise, you instructing one of your brothers to do it as well, right? So my my brother, I'm saying, hey, man, don't, the way you're viewing things, the way you're seeing things, I know you've been hurt. It's easier for me to do that because it's not me pointing as a white you know, male pointing to a black male and saying, hey, you need to, you need to, you need to, right? It's almost like that doesn't do anything for the conversation. I feel like that where oftentimes that's where this conversation has escalated sometimes into violence is when we're pointing fingers at the other side saying this is what you need to do as opposed to taking like our own ownership of, no, this is what we need to do. We need to help to bridge this by um, creating a new narrative inside of our own, you know, our own race in order for us to have, like you said, enriching relationships with people who are of a different race and a different color. Exactly. And, and you know, we have leverage with people who are like us. Right. We have those private conversations behind closed doors with people who are like us. That's where the, the real conversations, honest comments are made, and that's where change can happen. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Miles, some would say um, that the racial divide in our country is getting worse. And some would say it's not. But what, what, would, you, what would you say? Do you think that we're moving in the right direction? Do you think that 
the church is right now currently having a positive influence in the racial divide in our country as a whole? I mean, what do you see as the landscape of it right now? I, I think it is getting worse. I think people who are who in the past would say nothing are now being more vocal. Mm. Um, I think the church, uh, you know, we're having a simulcast event on September 15th and to talk about this. Oh, and cool. we have about 200 churches that are signed up um, to have this conversation on September 15th is a Saturday. The book comes out September 11th. And the the interest in something like this, I think, is high now because of um, the division in culture. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, I think it's getting worse. And two, in the second sense, I think it's causing people to say, we got to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think two or three years ago, there wouldn't be this many churches saying, I want to have this conversation. Um, and they can get information about that at milesofpearson.com about okay. the book or the release. And they can also go to Amazon and get the book, which I would encourage people to do. But right. um, the Race for Unity event on September 15th is we're going to um, simulcast it free online to talk about all this and even demonstrate how to have a conversation mm. in a small group. We're going to give demonstration on that. But I think that in culture, it, it's it's it, it's getting worse. However, I think a lot of times the devil overplays his hand and he wears people out with sin. And that's why we get saved because we just get so tired of being yeah. hungover all the time. Right. So I think I think we're at the point where culture is saying we have to do something. Mm. And, and that's why I think this book is going to be valuable because people are like, can, I need it. Some, something that's going to be practical, that will give me practical tools on how to be honoring, practical tools on how to love people and get to know people and approach people. And so uh, that's why I'm excited about this book, The Third Option. That's great. Well, the book is called, again, The Third Option. Pastor Miles McPherson comes out September 11th. Um, and uh, I know it's going to help a lot of people. I, I appreciate you stepping into this conversation, Pastor Miles. This has been really, really helpful. And I appreciate you. And, and like I said, if they they go to Amazon and get the third option um, and, and do the book, every yeah. chapter has next steps do the book and That's great. it'll change your life. I feel like this is one of those books you can't just sit and absorb. You got to actually, you got to walk it out. You got to practice Take it, you know? Got to walk it out. Got to walk it out. I love it. Hey, thanks so much for spending time with me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was such a good interview. Yeah, very, very good. I think it's really helpful for um, you know, someone like myself who's Caucasian, yeah. you know, white, essentially white privileged American trying to understand the other side. Yeah, you know, I think really when it comes to this idea of racial reconciliation, it doesn't come from trying to prove your point yeah. or make a point, but trying to understand exactly the other side and, and live in community with the other side. Yeah. I feel like the only way to like continue to do, continue to move forward with like hard topics or hard conversations is legitimately to talk about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. To like see the other person's point of view. Um, I'm excited for honestly, even like our four indie team and our volunteers right. to listen to this podcast, to um, get this in their hands. Right. Um, so that as we're serving every other Saturday in Riverside, like mm-hmm. we have a better understanding of the community, even that we're interacting with, you know? Yep. yep absolutely. And, and really this is boils down to the topic of, any kind of reconciliation. Yeah, of course. You know, not just racial reconciliation, but 
marital reconciliation, friendships, community. I mean, all of that stuff comes down to seeking to understand before you're trying to be understood. And um, I think that there's so much, uh, so much like aftermath pain that happens even after pain. So if you Mm -hmm. have a tragedy or trauma or something that you experience, the aftermath of that can be, you know, some of the fallout can be some, some irreconcilable things that take place. And uh, I think it's, you know, we are called to be agents of reconciliation is what Second Corinthians tells us, that God's given us that ministry to, to help people reconcile to God, but we can't rec- be reconciled to God and not be reconciled to people either. Right. You know, it's like our vertical relationship with God becomes the, the, the outflow of that really is supposed to affect our horizontal relationship with other people. Yeah. And so I think it was just really helpful to hear Miles' perspective on this as someone who's had a lot of encounters with this um, this issue of the racial divide. Yeah, of course. Know. Miles mm-hmm. has a lot to offer, even like within these conversations. So as a listener, if you're hungry to learn more mm-hmm. about his perspective or learn from him, um, we just really encourage you guys to go pick up his book yeah. um, or any of his books. Mm-hmm. But um, his third book uh, releases on September 11th. Um, so you guys can buy that online, really anywhere that books are sold. Um, we'll have information about his book, um, linked on the podcast page. So Mm -hmm. davyblackburn.com slash podcast. This is episode 33. You can find more information there. Um, but if you're listening to this podcast before September 11th, Mm -hmm. you can also still pre-order that book. So, uh, we'd probably recommend Amazon. It's probably the best place to go pre-order that, um, Barnes and Noble, wherever that might be. Um, but pre-orders really help, um, uh, Miles and his mm-hmm. team figure out like, Hey, what's the projection, uh, of, of these books? How sales? much to keep so, in stock and all of yeah, that stuff. Of yeah. So again, that book is called the third option, yeah. the third option, Miles McPherson, um, fantastic book. You'll definitely want to pick that up. Yeah. So guys, thanks so much for listening today and being a part of our nothing is wasted community. We definitely want to thank Um, Sleeping at Last for providing all the music. You can download his music anywhere. Music can be downloaded or streamed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can't wait to spend some more time with you guys on the next episode of the Nothing is Wasted podcast. We actually would love to give you a little teaser of that next episode because it is going to be incredible. So as we sign off, here's a little teaser for the next episode. You know, it's funny that you talk about worldly sorrow versus Mm. um, godly sorrow and grief. And I experienced that that year um, more than maybe any time ever in my life because a couple of months after following Jesus, I went on a trip for work and I invited a guy to come with me. Stupid, Mm. stupid choice, right? (laughs) Dumb. Like, come on, Jamie, get yourself together. (laughs) Um, And we ended up having sex and Mm. I ended up getting pregnant. I mean, wow. I mean, what are the odds? I mean, right, I guess exactly. they teach you this in class in middle school, like, you know, <laughs> um, but I ended up getting pregnant and here I am, someone who's really following Jesus and I make the same mistake I've made my whole life. Wow. Uh, you know, sexual intimacy was super difficult for me um, and I'm pregnant, but now I love Jesus wow. and what I felt, I, I, I have said one time to a friend that what I felt then, it, it's, it's funny because I felt I felt, you know, guilty towards God. Like I felt that. Uh-huh. Um, but I also, for the first time in my life, I felt so very loved by God. Wow. Um, through my mistake. Uh, because I think I felt grace really big right then. Wow. Um, and I felt that 
even though I messed up again, like, I mean, I really was like beating myself up. Like, are you kidding me? Really? Um, I felt so loved by God. Mm. Um, and before I would have felt, if I felt guilty, I would have felt like God was, he was mad at me or I let him down or I'm never going to be good enough to be a Christian. And in that moment, I didn't feel any of those things. None, not wow. one. And wow. that is a, an exam, a testimony to what happens when our life is transformed yeah. by Him, you know, because that's only Him. I, I'd been in that situation before. Oh, yeah. You absolutely. know, and that's not what I felt. Um, yeah. So I look wow. back at that failure and think, God, you were so big to me right then. 